2: Attended the launch of the Cummins 2017 engine lineup in July got to share a unique bit of the company's history. We got a first-hand look at the car that posted a record qualifying time at the 1952 Indianapolis 500. The car ran only once at the brickyard. It didn't finish the race because the engine air intake clogged with tire rubber off the track, damaging the turbocharger. It was exhibited many times after that in parades and at company functions, but it was eventually retired and put on display at Cummins headquarters in Columbus, Indiana. It has languished there since 1999. That's when engineer Bruce Watson brought it to the company's History and Restoration Center for a mechanical overhaul. Here's Bruce to tell us a little about the car and why it was so far ahead of its
3: time. So, we're sitting in this uh, number 28 Cummins diesel special. Um, This car was built specifically for the 1952 Indianapolis 500. Um, It's a Curtis chassis built by Curtis Craft in California um, and uses a special Cummins Model J engine that was modified so that it could lay on its side and lower the center of gravity and offset the center of gravity for better performance at the indianapolis motor speedway it was the first car to use the offset engine design it was the first car at indianapolis to use a turbocharged engine and when you start looking at some of the finer details of this car you just see innovation after innovation so this nineteen fifty two cummins diesel special um, was the first turbocharged car to run it in Indianapolis. It uses a, a shrouded compressor wheel in the turbocharger. Um, it it uses um, dual caliper disc brakes on all four wheels. It uses two shock absorbers at each wheel. One shock absorber is of the older lever type but those have been modified to be adjustable by the driver. The car has independent front suspension, which was quite unusual for Indianapolis at the time. Most of the of the Curtis cars and the other cars running there used a rigid front axle. Cummins built the car and went to the Indy 500 not so much to get into the racing
2: business, but to prove what a diesel engine could do. The 6.6 liter JT600 engine was a truck engine modified to race. To say it shocked the racing world would be an understatement. It set a track record at its first qualifying lap, clocking 139.014 miles per hour. To put that into perspective, a Ferrari with a 12 cylinder gasoline engine in the same qualifying round only averaged
3: 134.3 miles per hour. He made it. He made it. The engine uses a very early version of Cummins PT fuel system. This was one of the features that allowed the diesel engine to rev to the higher speeds that were necessary to make the horsepower for Indianapolis. Bringing the car and the engine back to life
2: required surprisingly little work. Some of the magnesium parts had to be reverse engineered and remanufactured from scratch along with a few of the engine and brake parts. The lubrication system had to be rebuilt because some of the original hoses were rotting. But in May of this year, after setting the valve lash and adjusting the injectors, the crew was ready to fire it up for the first time in 17 years. Watson says after spinning the engine over a few times to circulate the oil, they threw the start switch and the number 28 Cummins special came to life with a healthy, throaty rumble. While Cummins diesel engines had run the Indy 500 before 1952, the innovative technology used on the number 28 special paid off handsomely in the truck engine business. The PT fuel system, with its low pressure pump, common rail, and high pressure unit injectors, put the company way ahead of the competition for years to come. The car itself was way ahead of its time as well, with its low center of gravity, wide stance, and independent front suspension. It was also the first Indy race car ever to be tested in a wind tunnel, while driver Freddie Agabation was the only guy to ever pilot the car in a competition, today it's steered and geared by the same fellow who
3: restored it, Bruce Watson. So Bruce, what's it like driving the number 28 Special? It is absolutely awesome. This car is absolutely awesome to drive. Um, it, I, I I really wish that everybody could experience it because it is so mechanical. There, once the engine is started with the electric starter and that starter is removed there is nothing electrical going on in this car there's not a single electron flowing it is 100% mechanical and it very much feels 100% mechanical the feeling is just so solid and the sound is so solid It's just a really amazing experience. Quiet numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. If you love classic cars, then Donald loves you. Hi, it's Donald Osborne, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
1: You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us, me, live in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you want to tune in to the last 602 shows that we've just recorded, check out NostalgicRadioAndCars.com, the archive page. Good evening, Bobby. How are you? Yeah, well, how about you? Pretty good. Well, we just came off a very, very, very fun, spectacular weekend at Amelia Island for the uh, 27th Amelia Island Concourse, now titled The Amelia. We played a little clip there a a minute ago about this uh, uh, Cummings-powered Indy 500 race car, and... uh, if you go to my website, Gulfstream, or my Facebook page, GulfstreamModelsports.com, I've got a picture of that car. Right when they fired that bad boy up, I got a nice big chunk of blue diesel smoke puffing out of the exhaust. Perfect timing. And uh, that car, I thought, was fascinating. You think about this. Everybody's talked about, oh, diesel this, diesel that, how great, you know, and of course Porsche and Audi and everybody have been racing diesels in the early 2000s. Hey, it's 1952. And even before that, they were racing diesels. They were racing diesels in 1904 on Ormond Beach, the birthplace of speed. They had steam. They had diesel. They had electric. They had gasoline. They had, I'm not going to say hydrogen, but they had something similar to that. Uh, they were experimenting with that. They had all kinds of cool stuff back then, So, which goes to show you that we could be doing all that stuff today. You know, So it's not like you got to force this electric caca down our throats. And uh, go bonkers with it. We can. We had. There's alternatives for powering vehicles. In fact, I met uh, Mike Hull, who was the is he the managing director for Chip Canassi, Bobby? Correct. Yes. Okay. And uh, we we just did a quick little brief, hey there, hi there, ho there, and it turned into an one hour one hour conversation, which later he tweeted on uh, commented on our tweet Uh, because we put a picture up there, um, that he enjoyed the conversation about the future of racing. And we were talking about a lot of interesting stuff. And what I did not know, maybe all you guys do, but I did not know, I always thought that the race car teams go to the manufacturer. Apparently, it's the other way around. Once you're an established, let's say your name is Penske, or your name is um, uh, Canassi, or if you even remember in the movie Ford vs. Ferrari, they went to Carroll Shelby. They went to Holman and Moody. They went to Steve Stroop, Uh Or not Steve Strope uh, Bill Stroop, Stroop. Uh They went to Alan Mann. They went to all these, Jay Wire. They went to all these guys and said, hey, look, we want to go fast. We want to win races. And we want you to experiment with our cars. And hence, this is why Canasi, when talking to Mike there, uh, not only are they doing the Indy cars and the NASCAR, um, they're also doing uh, electric vehicles, and they're doing that in Europe, because Europe's kind of a little bit more um, ahead of that game, if you will, with their... In fact, Bob Varsha talks about it all the time, the Formula E racing. So I guess that's kind of, you know, a good a good proving ground, test ground for over there. But nonetheless, there were some amazing cars at Amelia Island. The Amelia, which is now taken over by Haggerty, they did a great job. It was really cool. They had... I, I could not believe how many... Um, Kids are being pushed around in baby strollers by their parents and by their grandparents. Now, naturally, you know, grandparents are going to, you know, they're in the cars, stuff like that. The Gen Xers, kind of in the cars. The millennials, well, you know, we still got to nurture them a little bit. Nurse them into taking an interest in cars, unless they're like my son, who's fortunate enough to have been around cars all his life. And... uh, so uh, but they had this giant slot car track set up. They had a little toy, uh, little table set up with little toy cars. They had crayons and drawings of pictures of cars. They had simulators. It was really, really cool. And you see here all these future um, up-and-coming haggerty rees uh, or, or car collectors, I should say, car drivers. But anyway, it was pretty, pretty interesting. And that's their goal. They want to get the younger crowd involved in it. They've got all kinds of programs. And uh, so my hat's off to Hagerty. They did a great job. The transition went well. The displays were great. The cars were great. The people was great. The presentation was great. I mean, you know, they're, they're carrying on Bill Warner's tradition. Now, having said that, there was three cars there that caught my attention. Yes, there's a lot of really cool exotics and all this stuff, and yes, the Cobras, but the three cars that caught my attention, one was this Cummings, which I thought was very interesting to me, okay? The other was a beautiful, stunning uh, pastel peach color, white over white. 57 Mercury Convertible. Stunning car. Early car with a single headlight. We had that debate once before with somebody else whether they had dual headlights or single headlights. The dual headlights were the later cars, very similar to the term by Cruiser. The early cars were single headlights, in my opinion, much prettier car. And then the other car that was there, what was the third one that I said I liked that was there, Bob? Do you recall? There was a very unusual Mercedes 300 SL that yes, had,
0: no bumper or, though had
1: no bumpers on it, which I thought was just a really, really, really pretty car. Um, But there was one other car there, and I can't remember, it escapes Uh, me. The
0: NASCAR, the 429. Oh, yeah, the the
1: 429, um, gray, silver goat, gray fox, silver fox, David Pearson, 1971 Mercury, Boss 429 powered. NASCAR. Now, I liked NASCAR back in the day because you could look at it. Oh, that's a Chevelle. That's a Monte Carlo. That's a you know uh, a Montego. That's a Torino. Uh, that's a Dodge Charger. That's a you know a B body of some kind. So that was cool. But nowadays, really, it's just a, a body with a bunch of decals on it and you know whatever they put underneath the hood. I'm not even sure what that is. Then I heard a rumor they may be going to hybrid next year. We'll see how that plays out. All right, let's go over uh, FLACarShows.com because there's a bunch of cool stuff going on. Obviously, Moultrie's coming up in a couple weeks. We've got uh, Barrett Jackson coming up in a couple weeks at in West Palm Beach. We've got uh, the Mid-Ohio-Columbus All-Ford Show coming up in a couple weeks. We've got a new show. It's called Showstoppers. I'll show that here. Showstoppers. And that's up at the—it's a collector car auction. It's going to take place up in Ocala at World Equestrian Center. Now, that— I was there earlier this year, or last year, when Festivals of Speed did an event up there. And I have to admit, I was fairly impressed with that. So this ought to be real interesting. You know, if you get a chance, Google showstoppers.com, collect a car auction. This is their first event. They're going to do two a year. And I spoke with Don. And uh, I actually went over and drove the Ocala yesterday and checked out some of the inventory they got. And they got some pretty nice cars. They got a beautiful display over there. And the cars are all inside, all cleaned up, all detailed, all ready to go in a nice air-conditioned spotless, I might add, showroom. And these cars are glistening. So a big shout-out to our friends over there, Showstoppers. And you never know, they might be a future sponsor of ours. You know, anything's possible, right, Bobby? Of course, Haggerty could be a future sponsor of ours. On that note, I'm going to go ahead and uh, let Bobby uh, fire up the turntable. We're going to go with a little 90s... I guess this is called alternative music. Is that what it is, Bobby? Getting into alternative. Getting into alternative. Hey, you're tuning into nostalgic freedom cars. I'll touch that doll. We'll be right back with a very special guest here in a little bit. Thank you. Okay. We're back and we're grinding some gears here. Actually we're not grinding any gears. We are shifting gears very carefully, like you do on a racetrack. You grind gears when you're can't when you can't reach the clutch pedal, right, Bobby? Yes, I or I know or, that. Or, or 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 when the clutch goes out and you have to start the car in gear and which happened to us that one time. What was it the MGB? we had that we lost the clutch in that thing and then we had to kind of stop, start it yep. in gear and then shift all and all uh, the way down oh, the driveway. Yeah. That that was Actually, on the way to the studio or back from the studio one time. I don't remember where that was. That, that was on the way, I think. Well, that was your first experience, learning how to do that. You know, in the old days, we were just joking about that. Me and my friend Brian, because he had an MGB, and I remember I had my Healy and stuff like that, and my Bird and everything else I owned it was a stick. And, uh, you know, if your car didn't, if your battery went dead, you and a couple guys just pushed it, somebody jumped in, you hammered the clutch real quick, and you put it in gear, and you let the clutch out, it would kind of start out. So that was kind of a fun experience. Bobby learned that, and then also, if your clutch does go out, you just shut it off. You start it in gear, you pull it, you know, and you and you give it gas right away, and then you run, and then you very carefully rev the, rev the run the RPMs up a little bit, and then you kind of let off a little bit, and then you just just it's like finesse. You just boop boop, and you slide it back in the gear, and you go, you accelerate a little bit, and you let off in the gas, and you kind of like as a car just kind of chugs a little bit. It's kind of fun. But all the kids today that have to drive automatics, well, they'll never know what that's like. Well, hey, Bobby. Anyway.
0: Unless Haggerty has their way.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, see, I thought that was pretty cool because they had all those old classic cars out there. You know, I forgot to look. We forgot to check and see if any of those cars were stick because they had a really nice old, uh, they had a DeChibeau in there, which I was surprised to see. A Camaro, a Mustang, I think a Dodge, a Challenger. I think you could choose.
0: Really, I, don't, no, I think uh, half and half. Maybe.
1: We'll have to we'll have to look, you know, because um, that that I that's good, and they should go around to all the schools in the country, and then they should invite all the kids out in the parking lot, and they should learn how to drive a manual transmission car. They need to bring manual
0: transmissions back. So it should be and, like weekend extra credit points.
1: Yes, yes, that, that's you, perfect. you See how fast that would. Oh yeah, yeah extra credit. Like, you learn how to drive. You learn the whole how to letter use, grade. <laughs> yeah, whole letter grade if you learn how to use three pedals, and spell it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Amelia Island was the big deal this weekend, and I got to tell you, it was a lot of fun. I went to the auctions. All right, Bobby and I were at Gooding. And we were kind of tooled in. We missed Bonham because that was on Thursday. So they had a record sale, uh, a gross sales of sixty-six million dollars. And what was interesting, and, and and Bonhams had 15 million, and RM did 46 million. So basically, uh, gooding our good friends there were the top dog this weekend. And of course, one car was 12 million dollars, 12.2 plus the juice, so that's another 12 percent or whatever percent, something like that. So that was a nice little um, deal for them. But nonetheless, a lot of the cars were there. Some cars went a little over the the uh, estimates. A lot of cars were shy of the estimate. But still, the bottom line is the takeaway is. The market is still very, very strong. I just stopped in the PJs. I stopped in the Golden Classics on the way in to Clearwater here. I was talking to my good friends, the wise guys, you know, because they're from New York, um, and checked out their stuff. And they telling, everybody's telling me the same thing. We're having a hard time getting cars, and people are beating the doors down for cars. So the classic car market is strong. Bobby, why don't you go ahead and fire up the stereo, and then let's get our special guest on for the, the show this
0: the, evening. The blue car market here is what we're going to uh, The hear. blue
1: car market. We're going to be counting blue cars. You're listening to a little...
0: Dishwala. And there's a lot of blue cars on that uh, show field. Got, yeah, there was a lot of blue cars on that show field.
1: Anyway, hey, you tune tuning into nostalgic Gradient Cars, don't touch that dial. We will. I promise you. I promise you. We will be right back.
4: stranger was your enemy until Wyatt Earp and his brothers arrived and now all hell is about to break loose. Kilmer, Bill Paxton, Jason Priestley, Sam Elliott, Dana Delaney, Michael Biehn, Powers Spruce, Charlton Heston. You gonna do something or just stand there and bleed? Justice is coming to Tombstone.
1: This is McKeel Haggerty, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So get out there and keep driving all those cool cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. It's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. And this gentleman is, well, he's a journalist. He's a photographer. He's an auction analyst. He is a insurance specialist. But more importantly, he's a car collector, and he's my friend. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Andy Reid. Andy, how you doing, buddy?
5: Good, thanks, Bobby. How are you?
1: Pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Why don't you just go ahead for our listeners, share your humble beginnings and your foray into the um, car world.
5: Okay. As a youngster. Start there. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I was always in the cars, and there's a couple things that probably imprinted on me. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad had a carnival. Which is a whole other rabbit hole. Let's not go down. <laughs> he get married from his dad, it was the family business.
1: Now this is in Michigan, so, right?
5: Correct. Okay. All around Michigan and uh, some in Florida. They, he traveled some in different units with it too, but primarily Michigan. Okay. So when you're a carnival kid and you're traveling with the carnival in the summer, you get to go up to all these state fairs and all these regional fairs and town fairs and stuff, and county fairs and such. So they have the carnival and the rides and the. Food and the games and all that. They also have events like the one that was the one that I'm thinking of is they used to have stunt rider, stunt driver, stunt rider, some driver teams. And one of them was called Dan Fleener's Hurricane Hell Drivers. And they were like really famous at the time. And they were at one of the fairs and they would do things like ride on two wheels and jump through the hoop and flip the car and jump other cars. And since my dad owned the carnival and it comes with the 1970s and you could do stupid things, <laughs> I got to ride shotgun during the show. So I got to be with Dan Fleener and jump through the flaming hoop in the car and jump the cars and go under the cars as they were flying over you and all this stuff. And as a probably six or seven, as opposed to being scared, I thought, this is awesome and was basically imprinted with car stuff from that time. Uh, in addition to that, my Uncle Jerry was a serious car guy. And the first time I remember riding in a sports car was with him, and he had an E-Type, a Series Ooh. 3. Go ahead. And he was, I was like little, so I'm like six, seven years old, so I'm like however tall I am, a little person. And he <laughs> said, he put the seat all the way back, and because he was tall, he said, you steer the car and I'll work the pedals. And we did. We went driving in the E-Type with the top down, and we went 100 miles an hour with me steering the car. I'm sure he had his wheels on the bottom of it. Huh. So he comes, I we come home to the house. He said, Now don't tell your mom that we did this. And I said, Okay. So I run to the house and go, Mom, Mom, I drive the car with Uncle Jerry. And we went 100 miles an hour because when you're seven, yes. you can't keep a secret. Nope. So that. Imprinted. And and uh, from there on, I was reading car magazines from nine years old, and was always into them. Uh, when I was fifteen, I bought a car in boxes, and I didn't buy a normal car. I bought a '68 Fiat 124 Coupe because it was three hundred dollars, and I thought it looked a lot like a Ferrari 250 on the front, and put it back together.
1: Now I have to ask you this other question. Back to the circus. Every circus has clowns. And
5: well, not circus, but carnival.
1: Carnival, yes. Okay, and 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 they always have a little, you know, where they're running around in this little circle thingy here in the middle of the and some big giant tent, and they always have some tiny little car, which is usually yeah. an Isetta. Did you have an Isetta? A Crosley, right? Or a Crosley, exactly. Was there an Isetta or Crosley experience for you?
5: No, I never drove a C- Isetta or a. C- I drove a Crosley once, and they're terrible. They're just, <laughs> I'm sorry, Crosley owners. Your cars are horrible. I mean, especially the early ones with the copper clad engine, which does not hold oil. But I drove an Azetta for the first time about 25 years ago, but never did that. And we never had, we didn't have clowns. We were basically rides and games and.
4: Okay.
1: Well, I I can say that I actually acquired uh, an old Azetta from the Ringling Brothers many, 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 many years ago in a package deal one time. The wheels were reversed because of what they would do is they would try to roll this thing around. In that little uh, pen that they had, that they run around in and the clowns, you know. In fact, it even had the clown shoes in the car when I got it, and I did not save them at the time. But oh, wait, that's oh, another story. Error, 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 error. All right. So now, f- then you move to Arizona.
5: Yeah, I moved to Arizona, which was strange, but I like actually liked it. I like Arizona. Mm-hmm. I was I eleven when I was eleven years old. I rode my first motorcycle there when I was. 12 years old. My parents didn't know. It was my dad's bike, but Mm -hmm. I was taller then. So, like, what was it? It was a CB175 Honda, so not a big bike, Mm -hmm. but I knew how motorcycles worked, and so I went riding down the street. and I wrecked my first motorcycle the same day, and they weren't there. We got a person looking after us, but I was a clever person. So I bent the shifter. Mm. I got it home, because I knew how to do it. I bent the shifter, but we had tools, so I pulled the shifter off. I got the person looking after us to take me to the Honda dealer to buy a new shifter, put a new shifter on it, and they never knew I bent the shifter.
4: Uh huh.
1: So when you were sixteen, like the rest of us, what was your besides the Fiat that you bought in a crate? But that you said you were thirteen or something like that when you did that. Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. So outside of the Fiat, what was your, what was your next car?
5: Well, it, I always say it was a Ferrari two hundred and fifty, which is really not true. It was my third. My second oh. car, I put the Fiat together and sold it, made some money, and bought a Porsche 912 Targa 68. Oh. On the way home, I felt that the thing was so rusty, the floor pan let loose. As I was driving the car, and I was dragging the floor pan down the road. So I get it to my house. It was only about a mile away from my house. And my dad goes... That's what you bought. I said, "Yeah, I have a Porsche." He's like, "It looks like there's a problem. What are you gonna do about that, idiot?" <laughs> so I told him, "I'm gonna get a job at a Porsche shop and learn how to fix it." He goes, "Good luck." The next day, I had a job at a Porsche shop.
1: Wow! In, in Phoenix, Tucson, Tucson. Oh, okay.
5: Redline Service.
1: Now wait a minute. Now, right. so you're buying a Porsche in it Arizona? The dro- it came it came from
5: North Dakota.
1: Okay, all right.
5: It had North Dakota plates.
1: North Dakota plates. Almost Canada. Yeah. Almost Canada.
5: It, it, almost, so almost Canada.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
5: but the floor pan was just done, and what they'd done is they pop riveted diamond plates over the rest the floor pan, and the pop rivets let go. So we had to cut the whole pan out of the car and replace the entire pan. Not part of it, not the front, the entire thing. So I got to learn how to do that.
1: And then along comes... Uh, a glorified I, Fiat, which is a Ferrari. Oh, I shouldn't say that. It, that didn't happen until after the seventies. Yeah, I
5: sold the sold the Porsche for I think four grand. Okay. Then I stole my college money to make up the difference out of my account, my parents' account. <laughs> and it was on Robert A. Reed, but my name's Robert A. Reed. So I wrote the check. I wrote I co-signed his name, my name, because we had the same name. We went into the bank. My friend Chuck, who I work with in the Porsche shop, we rolled into Schick Vandegrift dealership in California, in northern Southern California. I bought a three hundred and thirty GT two plus two Series One. Nice car. 5500 bucks. Single headlight car. Double headlight car. Series One's a double. Series Two is single.
1: Okay, I I, yeah. I stand corrected. I'm sorry. I Don't should worry. know better.
5: No, it should be. <laughs> I wish I'd had a single headlight car. Uh, But I bought it and got kicked out of the house, and thank God it was a 2 plus 2 because I lived in the car for a month. Oh, Because they didn't like that I stole my college fund.
1: Where'd you go to college at?
5: University of Arizona.
1: Oh, all right, very good. That's ASU, right? No, UA. Oh, no, that's UA. Okay, that's right. I'll I'll get get this. The Sun Devils is the other school. My son was looking at that college. Okay, that's in uh, Mesa down there. That's right. You're in Tucson. All right, so now you graduate from college. You got a degree in?
5: Media Arts. And what's funny is I bought this Porsche, this Ferrari, and it was endless hassle because it never ran. I had a couple of motorcycles and a Vespa as daily transportation. The thing was always broken.
4: <laughs>
5: and in nine eighty nine, Chuck, my old boss, who I still work for sometimes for paying my college bills off, said, hey, do you still have that stupid car? I said, yeah, it's my only car I own. He's like, take it down here. I got an idea. And so what he did, I didn't have a dime. I was working three jobs to keep the car running, go to school, pay for school, because I still had to go to school regardless of stealing my college money. I just had to pay for it myself. So I had loans out the Yin Yang. He goes, let's get this car painted, because it was marone. It was brown. Yeah. terrible. Who wanted that? Because we're going to paint it red. We're going to take it to Barrett-Jackson. We're going to sell it. And I said, why? He goes, because Enzo just died.
1: Oh, 86, 87, 88, somewhere 89. around there? 89. 89, okay.
5: 88 or 89. But we're going to go to the 89 Barrett-Jackson. So we put the $6,500 car through a decent but not awesome paint job, all door jams and stuff, but not not a bare metal paint job and not a take the car apart paint job. And sold it at Barrett Jackson and paid my college loans off and bought my Alpha and had my rent paid for the rest of the year and then the next year, and it worked, it worked really well.
1: Wow. What kind of alpha did you buy?
5: Uh, Julieta.
1: Okay, that's a nice little car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now tell us about your movie career, your movie background, and your movie uh, affiliation here, your connection.
5: So I originally went to school for photography, and I took a film class in it. And the funny thing about my photography is all my photos and my projects were series, like you know, running series of different things all on the same venue, like almost stills pulled out of a moving picture. And my wonderful friend and great roommate at the time, Eddie, goes, you're making movies with a still camera. Why don't you just do it with a film camera and call it a day and make movies instead? And my family had background in that industry as well. And I did it. I changed the media arts. By my junior year, I was going to school during the day and scheduling my classes around a job I had as a production assistant on a show called The Young Writers, which was shot in Tucson. Uh
4: So
5: I'd I'd work all day, study all night or study all day, work all night, depending on what the schedule was. And my professors in my junior and senior year, because most of my classes then were film classes, they got what I was up to. And so they really worked because it wasn't a... Totally organized program. There, it was kind of free for all. They let us. They let me. They let me do that. They knew I was working and what I was going to do and going to school to do, and so they were very kind to me. So I worked on that for two years. Got out of school. Didn't go to graduation because I was due to work on a film, and I was freaking out about not going to graduation. I talked to my advisor. I said, "So I've got this gig." But I'm not going to go to graduation. And I had like four weeks left. I hadn't taken finals. And she said, get out of here. This is what you're going to school for.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
5: go. We'll sort it out later. <laughs> and so I picked up all my crap and threw it in the car and drove to L.A. And the film that you worked on was? Oh, what was the film I worked on back then? It was working. It was just basically working for Warner Brothers in the office initially uh-huh. for a guy named Joel Silver at Silver Pictures. And I worked for him for about nine months, and then I started working on individual, I got a job at a feature, and it was just kind of, I was just kind of filling in for somebody else in the office. And so I worked on a feature, I can't remember what that was. Oh wow, that's a long time ago. Huh. I'd have to look at my IMDB data thing to actually tell you. But so I went from that, I worked on a movie called Firebirds, I worked on a movie called Geronimo, I worked on a movie called uh, Lethal Weapon 3. Oh. That was cool. That was back with Joel. Then I worked on a bunch of stuff. Uh, Tombstone was my favorite.
1: All right. That's uh, that why I nice. played that clip. Tell us a little bit about Because you, you actually became friends with a couple of the cast members on that show.
5: Wifelong friends. Yeah. And there's uh, friends of mine know this story, but I'm not going to tell it on the radio about some other things. But okay. it's, all, it's all good stuff. But... But no, I was working in the production office as a production secretary and then as assistant production coordinator to a certain degree at some kind of production secretary does whatever needs to get done. Mm -hmm. And I was picking people up at the airport was one of my gigs. And I picked up both Sam Elliott and Bill Paxton at different times. Oh, wow. And we just we just hit it off. Uh, So we became friends. I was friends with Bill till he died. I still talk to Sam like once a year, twice a year. I mean, they're not pals, but uh-huh. we got to be, you know, it was a nine-month production shoot, which is a long time to shoot a movie for. It's unheard of. No one shoots for nine months in principal t- photography anymore. So I spent nine months with these guys, and we got to be friends.
1: Pretty amazing. Now, where was that movie? Sh- was was some of that movie shot in Arizona?
5: It was all shot in Arizona.
1: Okay, so basically your backyard. At
5: yeah, shot in Old Tucson, uh-huh. and it was shot, all the soundstage was at Old Tucson, which was tense, burned down, and clo- they tried to reopen, and it's not closed. It's really sad, because I grew up going to Old Tucson, it's just like because it was an amusement park movie location, uh-huh. and I just loved going there, and it's gone. It, and the coolest thing was making a movie at the place I watched people when I was a kid make movies.
1: That's cool. So that
5: was amazing. The other place location was a place called Mescal, and that is a... Town, it's it's fake town. It's a it's a movie town that's built about 80-90 miles south of Tucson and about oh I want to say sixty miles northwest north I'm sorry northeast of Tombstone proper because Tombstone is like a town. Is it a they, town? Yes. Like make a movie.
1: It's off I ten if I remember correctly, isn't it. Yes. Okay. So when you so you're saying they actually had movie towns set up. Let's just say various locations around the country that are used for for filming for purposes of of special movies and
5: stuff, right? Not as much anymore, but they used to. Okay, like Gunsmoke was shot in a movie town. You can; it's still kind of standing, but it's not usable. Uh-huh. But there were lots of towns like this around. There was one outside of Las Vegas, uh, specifically for westerns. But westerns, they create facade western towns. Okay, I mean, old Tucson. Was built for this movie called Arizona, and it's twelve miles from Arizona, Tucson proper.
4: Uh-huh.
5: And it was built over near the superstitions, which you see in almost every John Ford movie. You see in all the Howard Hawks movies. All the Howard Hawks movies were made in Tombstone, made in old Tucson. Mm-hmm. But they rebuilt a western town for this movie called this big, giant, big budget uh, western made in I think the '30s called Arizona, and it lives in disrepair for about ten years, and then it gets rediscovered. And it's this crazy movie location. They made Bonanza there. They made countless features there. So it's used all the time.
1: What was it like on the set? Did you get a chance to talk? Because Chucky Heston was on there. Oh, Charles. yeah, and Heston, all the time. And, uh, and, and Kurt Russell?
5: Yeah, they were. Oh, so the best Charlton Heston story ever. Okay. So it's like you, in movies, you shoot part of your schedule that you shoot days. Yeah. And then you do the switchover to shoot nights. Okay. And it's, it's, and it's horrible. Cause you're up at like six and you go to bed at like six. So it completely throws out your your body clock. So we just switched to nights and it was, we were all getting back to the production office. So it's like six in the morning and we're wrecked. And, cause movie work is really hard physical work. People don't tell you this. Working on a set is hard physical work. If you're the makeup person, it's hard physical work. So we get all back. We're dragging in. And we're sitting in the production office drinking coffee when we should be sleeping. And we start doing impressions of Charlton Heston (laughs) on Planet of the Apes. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Someone goes, get your hands off me, you stinking ape.
3: Yep, yep, yep. And we're
5: laughing and we're all trying to do it ourselves and doing impressions. And we hear a voice going, that's not the line. The line was... Get your hands off me, you dirty, stinking ape. And who was sitting there at Charles Hansen, And we're like... And we're looking at each other like... We're all fired. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> and he held it like a serious face. And then he smiled. And we knew we were okay. He was... The consummate professional actor. He was. He would ride with the crew. He didn't insist on any special treatment. He was the easiest guy to work with you can imagine because he was a serious Academy Award winning pro, right? And he was charming and humble and kind. He was brilliant. It was. It was. A, it was. A, everybody you worked with on that show was astounding. It, the, the, Academy, the five-time Academy Award-winning director of photography, the editor that had won two Academy Awards at that point in his career, uh, Charlton Heston, I mean, the entire cast, Priestley's in that movie, uh, everybody's in this film. I mean, if you go through the credit list, it's ridiculous.
1: I, it really is. I was, it was an amazing cast. I mean, I will have to tell you, that's, you know, you know how there's the movies, like I'm a James Bond fanatic, okay? So I will watch Sean Connery over and over and still see stuff. Well, I didn't catch that the first time. But Tombstone is another one of those movies. You watch the detail. That was a very, very well done movie.
5: It's the highest budget Western ever filmed.
1: Really? Because of the cast of characters?
5: Cast of the characters, there were days when we'd have 85 horses on set, and 250 extras.
1: Jeez. Plus nine months of shooting.
5: Nine months of shooting. The logistics of that thing were astounding. Uh, Bill Fraker, our legendary he- director of photography, who was the head of the American Society of Cinematographers, the president, for like 30 years, so he was that guy. He had these hats made from Panavision, with like, like backs, back like flaps that covered your back, right? Like hey, baseball hats with like a thing on the back. right? And they said, Westerns aren't for wimps on the back. Because huh. he made like 20. We hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was just really, it was wonderful. It was one of the best experiences of my life. It was my single best experience in the film business, um, quickly followed by another really good one, another really good one, and the worst one that sent me out the door.
4: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
5: Uh, which I worked on this movie called Tank Girl, which was such a mess. Oh uh, uh, I just couldn't do it anymore. So
1: that's when you made the transition to say, you know what? I'm gonna be a full-time car guy.
5: No, no. I went to that and worked on the internet industry. I worked for Amer- I worked for a company called Intuit at Intuit,
4: Intuit really? what
5: they called their software evangelist yeah and I promoted it at different trade shows for com- and computer clubs at the time. This is early 90s. And then I went to work for A I I was poached by AOL to go to work for AOL. My initial job was to do this evangelist stuff. Somebody eventually saw that I had all this other experience. And so then I moved to Vienna, Virginia, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, and was working for corporate as a director of content of a number of channels. Interesting. And then I went from there to doing Internet Startups. The first one failed, second one failed, then I went to an ad agency in the internet space where I met my wife, which is great. I went to another one, which was the one I really wanted to go to, which was a great experience, and halfway through that job, friends of mine from AOL were doing a startup and they wanted me to move back east from Northern California, so we picked up and left and started an online furniture company that we sold to Hearst. Then I got another job working for a company, and then my internet law company that ended up ended up becoming LegalZoom after we sold it to LegalZoom.
4: Really? And then, I,
5: and then the internet fell apart, and I was a chief marketing officer that was unemployable because nobody was hiring after the internet crash in oh one oh two was hiring a founder and CMO from two successful internet companies. There was no there were no jobs. So I'm like, huh, what should I do? I think I'll write about cars. And? And uh, so I went. and ended up, I'm like, how does one do this? So I started taking pictures of cars. I had a photography background. I had gear. I knew how to shoot. And I went working, taking pictures for this terrible, it's not a terrible magazine, but they don't pay well. But a company, a magazine called Victory Lane, and I was covering vintage racing. And in that process there was a vintage race in conjunction with a IMSA race for whatever reason. I think it was in DC. And I was shooting the race. This is shooting in film. Not in not in video. There was no digital cameras were just still not good enough. And I took some pictures and ran into a guy at a company called LAT and showed him some pictures. And he goes, well, we'll take you on spec. You want to cover some indie races for us? And I said, how many? And he said, all of them. He goes, depending on how you do on the first one. So I went to Richmond. This is after I quit racing. All This is this is, this is 01 or 02. So I wasn't racing cars myself anymore. But I knew how races work because I race cars. So I went to Richmond and covered the indie race, which is a crazy place to run indie cars. It's too small. It's a three-quarter mile for tr- uh, asphalt. It's a, track.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, right, right, it's like Bristol.
5: It, it, yeah, it is, but it's just not as much banking. Which mm-hmm. is probably a good thing. But uh, in the last lap of the race, I I driven on Richmond. I knew how the racetrack ran. I'd been on there in, in, a, in a in a in a in a goodies dash car, so I knew how the c- track broke, where things broke on the track. You know where the where you break away, or where where tricks are. Right. And turn two is really tricky at Richmond. So they're all at the start-finish line. I went over, I said, just on a hunch, I put myself in turn two, thinking if something's going to happen, it's like, you know, 20 laps to the end, 15 laps to the end, it's going to happen right there. And lo and behold, end of the lap of the race, Dario Franchini, reading really the race, spins out to lose the race. I think the Dixon, I don't remember, maybe Dixon or somebody, and I get the shot, and I'm the only guy that gets it.
4: Oh!
5: So we run in there, and we're I, we, this is this was we had just had with dig, digital's were brand new. I was like using a Nikon Nikon D1 or something, right? Mm-hmm. So I run up there, I'm like, I got the shot, I got the shot, I got the shot. He's like, what? He goes, what shot do you have? I said, I got the I got the decider, and he goes, BS. And I I threw in my card across the room because LAT was a big deal back then. We kind of ran stuff. We were the best agency for wire service for racing photography in the world. And Levitt looks at my stuff and goes, Damn if you didn't. Welcome to LAT as a permanent associate. And I covered IndyCar and I covered some Formula One and I covered whatever they wanted me to do. It paid terribly. (laughs) 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 I hated it. And in the process that I was shooting some vintage racing, and I was covering a event at VIR, Virginia International Raceway, right. mm-hmm. for Classic Motorsports.
4: Okay, for, I, Tim.
5: for I'm sorry, for Victory Lane. Oh, okay. And I ran into Tim from CMS. Okay. And we were at dinner together at the dinner they used to do at the Gold Cup at VIR, and he's quizzing me about cars. He, I just met him and didn't know anything about me because no one read my writing. Nobody did. It was actually terrible, too. So he's quizzing me about cars. And I bought some cars at auction. I was collecting cars at this time pretty seriously at some levels because I had Internet money. And he goes, holy crap, you know more about European sports cars than I do. You want to be my auction columnist? I said, sure. And went to work for Tim for 15 years. And I built a brand there.
1: Classic motorsports, really. And, uh,
5: yep. I'll be darned. And it's funny, and I left there in, when did I leave there, Derek? 15, 16, 14? 14. And, and did some other stuff. I That's when I got involved in the insurance space and some other magazines. I did some work for Haggerty's magazine at that point. Then I eventually went to work for Magneto as a print magazine. And at the same time, I also went to work for ClassicCars.com for Larry Edsel, formerly of AutoWeek, Larry Edsel. And I work with Larry Etzel and Bob Goff there, too. And I have to tell you, it's the coolest gift in the world because Larry Etzel is a legendary, awesome auto writer. And he's taught me so much in the last, since, like, 14, 15. But so what's funny is I now work for Classic Motorsports, again, as a consultant. And I'm helping to run their Pacific Grove Uh, welcome party uh, car event, judge car event in Monterey on Tuesday coming up this year during Car Week.
1: Wow. Andy, we are up against the clock, but here's what we're going to do. I truly enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to have to invite you back here. I, I, I'm not sure who's coming on next week or something like that, but uh, I've done this on many, many occasions. We get into interviews with people. They're a lot of fun. They keep talking. Uh, which People love to be you know, informed, which is what you do, and uh, entertained. So I'm going to have to have you back for part two. I just okay. have to look at my schedule. But, Andy, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Truly a pleasure. To finally have you on the show, we've talked about this on and off here and there, you know, at some of the events because I see you everywhere. Um, and uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I want to delight, uh, thank my special guest, Andy Reid. Uh, just a fascinating guy with a very interesting background. Uh, amazing guy, Andy. Take care. We will have you back sometime. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night between seven and eight PM on the Tantalk, uh, Tantalk Radio Network for some of the fascinating legendary names in motorsports. And music. We will have music people coming on here in the next month or so, but uh, you know it's just been a real treat. So it's a great ride. Uh, speaking of rides, you guys need to go to come to the shows. To some of the car shows that are going on. Oh yeah, the Gator Nationals are this weekend too. Forget all about that, and just a lot of stuff going. On. Strawberry festival is going on this weekend. Just a lot. hey, Sammy Hagar is going to be over there. Hey, I want you guys to get out and drive your cars, just like Mikkel Haggerty said. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.